Soul's Moving Castle by Diana Wynne-Jones is a classic fantasy story of Sophie Hatter, the supposedly ill-fated eldest daughter who works in a hat shop, who irritates the Witch of the Waste, who then turns Sophie into a 90-year-old woman. The only way to break the spell is for Sophie to strike a bargain with Howell, a wizard who lives with his fire demon in a constantly moving castle. The book was turned into an Academy Award-nominated animated film from the great Japanese director Hayao Miyazaki. Hello and welcome to The Best Book Ever, the podcast where we get to know interesting people by asking them about their favorite book. I'm your host, Julie Strauss, and today I am joined by my friend Macy Nelson. Macy is a landscape designer, educator, and the host of the Landscape Nerd podcast. She's an avid reader, but actually came to this particular book because of the movie. Led there by her love of great animation and the lush landscapes portrayed in the film. I loved talking to Macy about why landscapes matter, even when we don't notice them, and what they mean in art, and why Howl's Moving Castle is the best book ever. Hi, Macy. Welcome to the Best Book Ever podcast. Thank you for having me, Julie. I'm so excited. Macy, how does one become a landscape designer? So... In my case, and like a lot of landscape architects, it was not a straightforward path. I thought of it was like a hobby, you know, like gardening, um, but I didn't know that you could do this as a profession. And so I started off as a animator. I wanted to be an animator in undergrad and it was really fun and it was my introduction to storytelling. But then that really started me on a path of loving people and their stories And then I've always been a nature lover. So I always love being outside. So I started to look for connections between people and outdoors and nature, which put me on this different path of like science. And what does that mean? And I'm like, oh, well, science is so cool, but science is kind of hard to access. So how do we get that to, you know, everybody? And so that's when I started doing this sort of communication between people and science and After school, I didn't know what to do with myself. So I like worked in service industry, like restaurants and hospitality. And when I was finally ready to go back to school and thought I might know what I wanted to do, which was landscape architecture uh, through some friends who are also gardeners who ended up going to become landscape architects, I just Googled it. And then there was a school that just opened up in my hometown of Cleveland. So I was like, this seems a little too good to be true Um, and did that. Okay. I have to ask you a really basic question. Is there a difference between landscape designer and landscape architect? There is a difference, but that doesn't mean that it is defined by every person the same way. So a landscape architect is mostly defined by the licensure, right? Like, so the ability to practice uh, with, safety and welfare in mind so that you can work on public projects. Do you know how to rate fall zones for playgrounds? You basically know how to design something that's safe for people to use versus landscape design can be more conceptual. 
Now, is gardening something that you still do in your spare time, even though it is your career? Or has <laughs> has it become a kind of thing where you want to leave your work at the office and go home and... <laughs> um, it would be something I would still do, but being a mom, I think, is what got in the way of gardening more than my career because I love what I do and I love plants still and growing them. I just love that process. So in my mind, I've made many gardens and I've built many <laughs> gardens, um, but no, of my own, it is probably the first thing that went away. I was like, and that's fine. I did a good job for the first like 10 years of, of this. So that's fine. Yeah. It's funny how that happens, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Your podcast, The Landscape Nerd, is not at all what I expected a landscaping podcast to be. Um <laughs> It's not like about soil amendments or the best fertilizers to use. And instead, it really feels like you look at landscape as a concept. And the episodes I've listened to, you've explored music in landscapes. And your most recent episode was about botanical illustration. And it almost is like you're you're teaching us how the natural world is kind of part of our everyday experience and part of all of our senses, even though we don't really notice it. Is that, was that your goal or am I making that up? No, that's absolutely the goal. I'm really glad that that came across because I view landscape as a, just the great unifier, right? Like it's Mm. all of the outside. Um, and that, if you're fortunate enough, you get to experience that almost every day. And the more you know, the more you can enjoy something. And I just think it's also the backdrop to all of our lives, right? Whether it's literally the setting of, you know, your backyard and you spend time there, or is it, you know, when you go on a walk and, or is it just the parking lot that you have to be in every day? Like someone has a hand in designing those spaces. And I think people should know how that happens and why it happens. It's not just, oh, a parking lot for parking lot sake. You know, someone thought of something, right? <laughs> like someone thought it needs to be safe. Someone thought it needs to be here. Someone was inspired by a certain planting to put there. That That's what I wanted to share. So people felt like they knew their world around them. The first time I noticed I really paid attention to landscape design was a a cathedral was built in Los Angeles. Oh, gosh, I think it's been about 20 years now. And I remember reading an article about the landscape designers who constructed the space. And they said that they were thinking of it in terms of what the garden spaces would look like in 200 years. Mm -hmm. That made me realize that landscape designers think really think into the future yes um i call it a time horizon because we think about the longevity of plants and then also succession and we do a lot of systematic thinking right systems tend to outpace and outlive us you know as like individuals right you know like an ecosystem is so dynamic and keeps going. So if we look at the system, we build and design for a system, not for one time purpose, which I think is a huge difference between architecture and landscape architecture, because since they both have the same 
kind of title, people get them confused. Landscape architecture is building for centuries and for succession versus architecture is building for kind of an immediate need, (laughs) you know, something that happens right here and now. And yeah, so being able to look at the world in a way that is not about me, like I'm not going to experience some of the things we design at its height, right? Like I'm not going to, I'll design it, but I'm not going to witness it at its 75 year peak, you know, and, but I can design for that moment and and know that it's going to be worthwhile. So much of what we do in home gardening is immediate, right? Like I, Mm -hmm. I, I want tomatoes this summer, I ranunculus next spring, or, you know, when we think (laughs) about that, what we want to look at right away, but uh, you know, we're not necessarily thinking about what is this space going to look like? I don't know, for my grandkids. I never think about stuff like that. I always think about what I want right now. And it's so interesting to to think about your exterior space in terms of the future. What a, what a mind shift. <laughs> I, I think there's so much space for both, mm-hmm. right? Like that's great. You know, the fact that you know that a plant can produce something for you in a season is already extremely powerful, right? And And that I think is great because it serves a purpose that does in a way get passed down because it's something that you're able to share with someone else or someone else can see. And that is its own, you know, passed down information versus you walk through a park and generations can walk through a park and never really know (laughs) what what they're experiencing and who designed it and why. So Mm. it's good to have both. They like, oh, I have ownership, me, myself, over this this garden that I built in my own landscape and I see it grow versus when someone designs something for you or for the public that may not have today in mind and it has tomorrow in mind. There's room for it all. When we spoke last week and I was showing you the copies of this book um, that I had and we mentioned that Howl's Moving Castle had been turned into an animated movie and and we're going to get to that in a mm-hmm. little bit but um you said that the movie influenced you as a landscape designer <laughs> and so that makes me wonder when you consume art all kinds of art do you always notice the exterior spaces like in in movies and in tv shows and paintings and i don't know like are you always thinking about about the exterior space and how characters are using exterior space? Yeah, I, <laughs> I am always thinking that. I remember, like, and sometimes I'm even critical when I don't need to be. Um, <laughs> you know, like, I, I remember there was some insurance commercial where children were, like, skipping outside and they were on this, like, like stepping stone pathway. And I was so furious because the still looked like they were a safety hazard. And I was like, why are you letting children play on that? You know? Um, but yeah, and actually it's something that I'm working towards maybe cataloging a bit better um, and talking about why these landscapes have impact that they do, especially in media. You know, like why do people choose the lawn and the picket fence when they want to showcase a perfect family on TV. You know, why do people choose vast, you know, countrysides of England when they're trying to do period dramas, 
Like those kinds of things are extremely fascinating to me. And so, yeah, I have to pay attention to it. What's your reading life like? Were you always a reader? I was always a reader. And that was um, something my mom really pushed for all of us. There's three of us. Um, And so if we ever went out shopping and if we asked for a toy, we would literally have to put a time limit on how long we thought we would play with that toy. And, (laughs) and my mom would then gauge whether or not that was an appropriate amount of money to spend on a toy for that amount of time. Um, But if we ever asked for a book, it was always yes. I love your mom. Yeah, it was really great. Yeah, she, that was amazing. And so I always found comfort and adventure in books And so, yeah, I've always been a reader my entire life. I even have a little tattoo of a book on my arm. Oh, my God. (laughs) What are your preferred genres when you're just reading, not for work or when you're just reading for the sake of leisure? Uh, Yes, um, I really enjoy magical realism. Um, I think it is something that I can relate to because I think I find a lot of magic in real life spaces, not realizing that's what I would do as a, for a living and make as a podcast. But that is why I think I gravitate towards it versus something like fantasy that is, you know, constructing new worlds. Um, I think I find that hard to keep up with. I mean, I'm in awe of it, but I find it hard to keep up with. So yeah, magical realism and, some historical fiction. So tell me, how did you find this book that we're talking about today? Howl's Moving Castle by Diana Wynne-Jones. We mentioned a little bit earlier, was turned into a film by Hayao Miyazaki's animation studio called Studio Ghibli. And I was a huge Studio Ghibli or Ghibli or Ghibli, people say both, uh, fan ever since I was little. Um, And I think 2004 is when Spirited Witch won the Academy Award for animated film that year. Okay. That was by the same studio. So that was like my introduction to animation. And that's when I wanted to be an animator. Um, And so that film, even though it wasn't as popular in the U.S., I think, I just loved the way it was done. And I loved the story. And I didn't know that it was a book until much later. And what captured me was the wholesomeness of it, which I mean, makes a little bit of sense for animated films. But as we know, the media doesn't mean that it is wholesome. And that's when I found out that it was a a children's book, like a long form children's book. And I thought that was incredible because the story was so rich and had a lot of layers to it. I was like, but this is for kids. And looking at the philosophy that the animator Hayao Miyazaki has about not underestimating children and what they're able to learn from the world was shared by Diana Wynne Jones in saying like, don't underestimate what kids can interpret from the story. So you can layer in things. So will you tell my listeners what the book is about? Yes. Okay. So the book is about Howell's moving castle and his adventure but the protagonist a woman named sophie hatter and so sophie has a curse put on her that transforms her from essentially a 17 18 year old girl to a 90 year old woman 
And in this world where magic exists, she sought out the help of Howl because he was known for being a very powerful wizard. And the story is about their adventure together and how, uh, oh, I guess I should also say that Howl is powerful, but he's also known for being evil or sinister. And so the fact that she's going to him for help means that she's expecting him to be sinister, but they get to know each other and they get to see how those stories and rumors come about and the misunderstandings people have about magic and wizards and people. It can often be a jarring experience to go from the movie to the book. <laughs> um, but you don't have that because you when I asked you to choose a favorite book, you you immediately knew this was your choice. <laughs> yes. I, I love it when that happens. Um, so tell me what you love so much about the book. I love the story and the focus on women, strong women who choose their own path. At the time, I didn't really know that's what I loved about it because in a way it's a little bit of romance, you know, because Sophie and Howell do grow fond of each other. It wasn't this immediate attraction, you know, because she was a nine-year-old woman and he was a man who conjured himself literally with potions to make himself super attractive. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So I just like that there's this honesty there that was, okay, if we can eliminate romance from the central part of the story and we're just trying to solve a problem and we're using our resources and we're using our wit that it can also be a very compelling story and it's nothing to deal with traditional romance. And I, as I get older, come back to that book because of Sophie feeling comfortable in that older body. Because I think we've all been there where sometimes it's easier to move through life when no one's paying attention to you based on your looks, based on your, yeah, your sexuality or your availability and your desirability. That when she becomes a 90-year-old woman who can just be witty and smart and even be viewed as dangerous because they think, oh, she's so old and wise. She must be a witch. I don't want to mess with her, but she couldn't have carried that weight as a young woman. And I think I identified with that and still do because there's something about, you know, the society that we are living in that makes it hard to feel powerful as a young woman. Curses that are frequently put on women in fairy tales is to turn them into, quote, you know, old crones. Exactly. Like, that's the worst thing that can happen to you is you get old version of you. Like, it wasn't that she was dying. It wasn't that she was, you know, sick (laughs) or ill. Right. It was that, nope, you're going to become ugly and unattractive. Yeah. By society standards. <laughs> and I was a little worried when I saw that was coming. I thought, oh, God, here we go. She's going to go mourning her beauty for the rest of this book. And she really just went, OK, so I'm old now and mm-hmm. just kind of went about her business. <laughs> well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get out of this, you know, hat shop. And and I kind of love that she would like notice things like, oh, huh, my knees are kind of stiff today. Must be because <laughs> I'm old. Let's just keep on. <laughs> yes. And I think that was. What I loved is that there's a relief that came as much as it would be traumatic to go from my age to 90. It's okay. Like there are women 
many of us who would probably be just fine because we believe there's more to us than that. And that is what I do. I love about Sophie where she's like, all right, I'm trying to take advantage of what I can do in my old age because no one's expecting me to be, you know, whatever, like this super feminine and super delicate thing. Like, okay, I'm allowed to be this sort of like in your face, witty, even kind of rude person just because of one thing, which is my appearance. And, and, and ageism, right? There's an ageist component to it too, where people are a lot nicer to her. They help her out a lot more. Uh, and she does take advantage of it. And you can see that. And it's because it's something she probably didn't get a lot. It wasn't until she became the older woman that she was able to explore her powers, like her magical powers, because it was something that she didn't know she was able to do. She didn't know that she had any magical capabilities, even though in this world, those are, you can inherit them or you can learn them. And she had a little bit of both, but hadn't explored it in all of her years because that was not the focus. The focus was how do you set yourself up to a decent career or take up with a man who can provide. And they touched on that a little bit in the beginning of the book of what the expectations were. And even though they weren't necessarily romantic only, you know, like they didn't mention too much about marrying rich. It was just, how do you provide for yourself? It was still based on prettiest, youngest, other expectations, you know, other societal standards that was, had nothing to do with her own talent. I have to say you're you're touching on the thing that I loved most about this was the way that it feels like every single trope exists in this book. <laughs> because sometimes I felt like, oh, this is directly lifted from Wizard of Oz. Oh, this is directly lifted from Cinderella and the stepsisters and all of the typical fairy tale and romance tropes, but every single one of them is sort of turned on its ear. It's all just slightly twisted into, well, what if that exists in the real world? What would it look like? And <laughs> yes, I thought it was so much fun. I agree. I, I viewed it as like some, all those tropes, but with like some self-awareness mm-hmm. is, is how I, I thought exactly. of it. You know, it's like, yes, the three stepsisters, but really if you grew up genuinely loved equally, you know, what is that? What does that look like? You know, when there's a stepmother who understands that you are sisters and takes that into account, right? There wasn't, there wasn't a lot of extremes when it came to emotions, except for like the villains, right? Like the kind of villains of the story, but no one was really a pure villain. It was, everyone has these very human emotions and there are consequences to your actions. And so you have to have them be measured you know, you, you have to be aware of why you're doing something and, and put it up against the action that you're going to do and, and figure out if that's a good or bad thing. And people may or may not understand. And I think especially yeah. with Howell was a big, you know, he was the representation of that where he wanted to blacken his name so that he wouldn't be asked to do things because he was a coward but he wasn't necessarily a coward in the way that he was avoiding doing the right thing. It was that he was a coward and knowing that doing the right thing is a scary thing. 
and he wanted to do the right thing, but had to psych himself out, you know, or he wasn't going to do it. So I thought that was such a human emotion. And I think all of us do that. There, The book I kept thinking about as I was reading it was it reminded me a lot of Wizard of Oz and there and which is exists in a completely different universe than the movie. Um, You know, there's that whole series of Oz books. And there are also two books in this series that I read uh, Mm -hmm. that I read about called Castle in the Air and House of Many Ways. Have you read either of those? Yes, I read both of them. So I read the series. And do do you like those? Yes, I do. I, I, I think that when you talk about Oz, it's because is it because of that transporting into a different world aspect? It was that. And also just that it felt so fully realized. Like it, it honestly felt to me like this entire world with, you know, a governmental system and, (laughs) and different communities and, and that's what I always think about Oz is, is if you only see the movie, you don't realize that there are all these different communities in the land of Oz, you know, the Winkies and all those different people. And yes. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I, I the other two books also do a, a touch of the transporting, but they they go a little bit further, right? Like this is the in this book, you get the angry world and then the real Welsh world, like our mm-hmm. world. Mm-hmm. And in the other books, you get angry and then the other countries and nations in in this universe. Now, is this a book that you reread? Um, yeah, it is. It's like a comfort read for me. Mm, I love that. Have you introduced <laughs> it to your son yet? No, I tried to get him to watch the movie to see if that would help. And he was not having it. But I also haven't looked at a like picture book version of this. And when you showed me that book um, last week, I was like, oh, maybe I should try that. Now, I intentionally did not watch the movie because I wanted to talk to Mm -hmm. you about it first. But is the movie very similar to the book? You know, it actually is not. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, I think the big difference is that, like many movies, you do need to find that binary a little bit. You do need a little bit more of a villain character or a villainous intent. So mm. the movie does paint the Witch of the Waste as the villain, right? Okay. Um, but you do get her humanish side towards the end. So it's not completely like, oh, we're going to vanquish the the bad lady because the real enemy in the story, the real villain, which is typical in Miyazaki films, is war and violence. It's uh-huh. to say, like, we're all people and the real enemy is the desire to fight. That's that's the thing that he is advocates against. Another big difference is the relationship between Sophie and her sisters is not nearly as explored Mm. and and Fanny and her stepmom versus in the book, you start to see that there are these connections and they rely on each other and they love, you know, but in the movie, it's very much just about Sophie. Sophie is her own Island. 
in that family structure. There must be an anniversary coming because um, it is playing at my local theater in September on the big screen. They occasionally do that, like a release into theaters, which I love um, for different films from that studio. I was going to just see if I could rent it at home, but going through this anime book, I really feel like this is one that you need to see on the big screen because, you know, like you said, the landscapes, the depth of the animation just looks extraordinary. And I feel like it would be a really different experience. Yes. And oh, I'm glad you mentioned the landscaping just because even though I love this book for a lot of reasons, one thing I did really enjoy is the attention to detail of when landscape was mentioned. Like I thought that when talking about calming the uh, Miss Angorin, the fire demon mm-hmm. was because she saw the rhododendrons outside, right? Getting her out of the castle because they were so pretty. Or the fact that when she felt lost, it's because it was a sea of heather, which is a plant that I don't know if you have heather around you, but it grows in like giant masses in the like Welsh countryside. And so that they're purple and yellow sometimes and that it's just this huge mass. So you don't know where you are. It's really easy to get lost. And so anytime they were lost, it was your feet brushing against the heather. And then when they were describing Howell's hometown, you know, like when they arrived at his real, you know, the real world version of where he grew up, that it probably described any, you know, 1980s home Mm -hmm. (laughs) in front yard. And I thought that was really incredible that she used sentiment and emotion as a way to tie in landscape rather than just describing a setting. Which is exactly how you think. Yeah, it is exactly how I think. It's like people connect to feelings. Then also, I can't remember if it was book. It might be in the next book. They mention a lot of bluebells. And Mm -hmm. um, what I love about that is these, then it turned into a gesture, like building a place where there was a bunch of flowers because Howell went to gift Sophie the flowers. You know, I I view a lot of what I do as a profession and landscape as a gift to the public, right? They may never understand it or know it. And that's totally fine. But the gesture of like a zoo and a botanical garden or a campus or a rain garden, I feel is the gift that you're able to give to someone and that you know, for, for me, because that's what I care about is a huge deal for other people. It could be, you know, whatever, but gifting places to people or a sense of place to people is really, really cool. And I hadn't seen another author really do that. And, and she did. Macy, what are you reading right now? Um, I am so actually, I just finished two books because I was listening at the same time the cartographers the oh how is it it was really good it was um not what I expected I thought it was going to be a bit more history like historical Mm -hmm. um but as someone who reads a lot of maps I was intrigued that someone took the time to really like talk about maps yeah um 
it's a lot more action than I thought it was going to be. And then I just finished A Sense of an Ending. That was one of the first episodes I listened to from your podcast. And I had it in my library and I was like, it's not, I had a, I had a free day and I listened to it and I was like, oh, I love this. There, Yeah, I really, really loved it. And I still think about some of those quotes, like they're still circling, circling around in my head. Wow, um, that is so yeah. cool. <laughs> well, why don't you share where my listeners can find you? Okay, so your listeners can find me on Instagram at the landscape nerd. I also have a website, uh, www.thelandscapenerd.com. And also, if you want to listen to my podcast, which is the Landscape Nerd Podcast, you can find them on all streaming platforms. Wonderful. Well, it has been so much fun talking to you. And I really hope you will come back so we can talk garden books sometime because I think that would be so fun. Oh, I'll, I definitely will. I have a list in my head already. I'm like, oh, oh yeah. <laughs> that would be great. Fantastic. I look, to it. I look forward to it too. Thank you so much for joining me today, Macy. Thank you, Julie. Thank you for joining me today on the Best Book Ever podcast. Links to all the books we discussed are in the show notes or at my website, bestbookeverpodcast.com. You can also find me on Instagram at bestbookeverpodcast. If you have a book you want to tell me about, click on the Be a Guest button on my website or Instagram bio so we can chat. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with someone you love and rate it on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to hit the follow or subscribe button. Thank you for joining me today, and I will see you at the library. Don't make me giggle. I'm I'm sorry. I'm not going to promise that. I'm not going to do that.